Uh, just a couple of weeks ago at our Christmas luncheon, uh, Zach Smith led us in a great round of Kahoot, and uh, I should let you know that I, I did much better this year. I was actually in 12th place halfway through, only four points behind Chuck, and, and I have a screenshot to prove it, okay? But from there, it was all downhill. I don't think I got any more questions right and ended up in 55th place, so a little bit disappointing. Uh, we're not going to do a Kahoot this morning, um, but, but I do have a multiple choice question for us to start out, and I think uh, we can get it up on the screen there. Um, when you reflect on how you came to be born again, what are your thoughts? So here are five options, and just, just make a mental note what, how you would answer. Number one, I prayed to receive Jesus as my Savior, and so I was born again. Two, someone shared the gospel with me. I chose to respond in faith, and I was born again. Three, I don't know what born again means. Four, I don't know if I've ever been born again. Or five, I'm amazed that God, because of his great love and by his great power, caused me to be born again. So just make a mental note. Um, You can text it to Zach maybe, and he can total all our answers up there. We'll come back to this question in just a few minutes um, about being born again, but probably all of you know we're at the peak of football season here, and football going on all over the places, and stadiums packed with thousands of fans, and lots of cheering, and groaning, and celebrating, and consoling, and reliving the great place with your friends on the week to follow, but how strange would it be if your team was down by two with time running out and they kicked a 56-yard field goal to win and the crowd was totally silent. No cheers. Not a tear. Nothing but total silence. And you'd wonder, did, did everyone just drop dead when they snapped the ball? Are they under a spell? What happened? But if that same game was being played at the Georgia National Cemetery up in Cartersville. There are also thousands of people present there as well, right? But it wouldn't surprise us at all if the crowd was absolutely unresponsive to that winning kick because the vast crowd in that cemetery, they are all dead, totally dead, right? They're deaf, they're blind, they're unresponsive. Jalen Hurts, Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, they they could throw six TD passes No one would pay any attention up there. The fireworks after the game would get no oohs or ahs. And even Tom Brady could show up and no one would even roll their eyes. We know the difference and we expect a total different response from people who are dead and people who are alive. And in our passage today in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul wants us to see and understand the radical difference between who we used to be when we were dead in our sins and who we are now being alive in Christ. And he also wants to understand how did that radical change come about? A number of years ago, I was in a conversation, I think it was a Bible study group with some men, and we were talking about our own conversions. And one of them said something to the effect that, I was smart. I made a wise decision and I put my faith in Christ. Was that really what happened for that man, that he reasoned it through? 
and then decided to trust in Christ? Is that how he was saved? You know, to be honest, for a long time, my own thinking about my conversion wasn't a whole lot different from that. Even into my young adult years, I wasn't very amazed or surprised that I had been born again. After all, I was such a nice guy, such a good guy. So I thought. And I just assumed it was the result of something I had initiated, you know, sort of like a transaction, an agreement with God that if I would pray the sinner's prayer and genuinely mean it, then God would respond and sort of complete the transaction by giving me a welcome to the family, you're born again card or something like that I can put in my pocket or at least keep in my memory bank. You know, remember, hey, June 7, 1966, when you went forward at camp or whenever the date was. Sort of, it's sort of like I sort of viewed it as a switch, that we have the ability to flip the switch by responding to an altar call or deciding to get baptized to indicate that we want to become a Christian. But then, thankfully, I came to realize that that's not how the Bible describes what happened to us, is it? At some point, someone showed me 2 Corinthians 4.4 that says Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from being able to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Hmm. So I was blind. I could not see the glory of the gospel. Hmm. Then someone shared with me Romans 8.6-8 through 8, that unbelievers, including me, are hostile toward God. They're not neutral. They don't submit to God's law. Indeed, they cannot, Paul says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So that's what I was like. And today we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, that develops this even further when Paul talks about what we were like before we became believers and what we are now. And just the amazing radical change that happens. So if you have your Bible and return turn to Ephesians 2. Aaron read at the beginning of our service from Ephesians chapter 1. And here in Ephesians 2, we'll read the first 10 verses. But I'm going to focus primarily on verses 1 through 6 this morning. But Ephesians 2 chapter, chapter 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we'd ask you to do what Paul prayed at the end of chapter 1, that you would enlighten our hearts so that we may know what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe. The same power that you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places. Father, would you work by your spirit to help us realize that's what happened to us as well. So work in us, please, through your word, by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to look at just two main points today. First point is, and you were dead, verses 1 to 3, and point 2 is, but God made you alive, verses 4 to 6. With a few subpoints underneath each one of them. So this passage here, the first 10 verses in chapter 2, is another one of, of Paul's long sentences that just seems like they just run on and on. Um, and, and the subject of the sentence and the main verb don't show up until verse 4. So it's sort of interesting. The first three verses are all subordinate clauses. And the main, main subject that doesn't come until verse 4, the subject is God. And the main verb then is made alive. God made you alive. But in the first three verses, he gives sort of this preparatory stuff before he gets to verse 4. And what we have here is the first episode of the walking dead, brothers and sisters, right? That's what he says. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So we've got to think, what does he mean? You were dead, but we are very actively alive, very much walking. And when you think about who we were before we were believers, and you look around this room, and there are some intelligent people and some gifted people here, people who have accomplished a lot of things, entrepreneurs and scholars and teachers and, and business people and even some athletes, but gifted people, and so what does Paul mean? We were very active. What does it mean that we were dead? Well, John Stott puts it this way when he says, In the sphere which matters most, they or we had no life. We were blind to the glory of Jesus Christ and deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. We had no love for God, no sensitive awareness to his personal reality, no leaping of the Spirit towards him in the cry, Abba, Father. No longing for fellowship with his people. We were as unresponsive to him as a corpse. So we were truly the walking dead, weren't we? And Paul uses three different phrases or, or has three descriptions to describe what we were like in that condition. We lived according to the values of the world. We lived according to the wishes of the devil, and we also lived according to the passions of our own flesh. So in verse 2, he says, the sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. And the idea of the course and the world talks about a whole world, a whole value system of the world, which is alien to God. Stott describes it as secular, repudiating God 
amoral, repudiating any absolutes, and materialistic. This is the, the values of the world around us, and we walked fully according to those values. Secondly, we lived according to the wishes of the devil. The second part of verse 2 says that we followed the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. The prince of the air, the power of the air, that's Satan, right? The devil. He's also the god of this world. Paul describes him elsewhere. And John says in 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So it's the prince of the ruler. He is the one who controls the spirit that's at work in disobedience. He says the spirit now working in, in the sons of disobedience is controlled by, the, by, the, by Satan. And this is a rather, rather sobering thought because I think we often think, I was just doing my own thing. I wasn't controlled by Satan. I was just doing my own thing. But God says here, no. Apart from him, we were doing Satan's bidding. And Satan doesn't care if we don't know that. All he wants us to think is you're doing your own thing when in actuality we were following the wishes of Satan himself. We walked according to the values of the world, according to the wishes of the devil, but we also walked and lived according to our own sinful passions. And so in verse 3, Paul says, that among whom, among those sons of disobedience, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. You see how verse 3 includes all of us? It says, we all once lived that way. There's not a single person in this room, not one of us, for whom this description does not fit. This describes us to a T, apart from Christ, brothers and sisters. Whether you're a man or woman, whether you're 8 or 80 or anywhere in between, your life and my life is described here. Good news is coming, brothers and sisters. Good news, great news, gospel news, glorious news. But Paul deliberately chose, before telling us the good news, that he wants us to be inescapably clear our desperate need as sinners apart from Christ. And I think the point of verse 3 is that we were not unwilling or unwitting accomplices. We were not reluctant allies with sin. You and I didn't occasionally visit our passions and the lusts of our flesh. Verse 3 says, we lived in them. We lived to carry out, to gratify, to indulge our sinful desires of our flesh and of our own reasoning. It wasn't accidental or forced on us. It was deliberate. We wanted to live that way. So we see here in these verses what we often refer to as our threefold enemy, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil. We conformed to the pressures of the world like everyone else around us. We did the wishes of Satan and we enjoyed it. We did our own passions. We wanted to live that way. And I think back on my life. Oh, I, I had a facade of decency. A lot of, a lot of us did, right? We had this facade of decency. And I think about 
if, if I had been killed in a, in a car wreck or something, and, and at my funeral, I'm sure a number of people would say, oh, he was such a fine young man, such a nice boy, right? And yet, when I think back, and, and when you think back, aren't you ashamed of the things you know were underneath that facade? Prideful lustful, hateful, angry, self-centered thoughts and desires that just roamed unchecked in our hearts and minds. Brothers and sisters, we weren't out looking for God. We were looking for new ways to indulge our fleshly lusts and passions. So it is, is it any surprise then that Paul finishes out verse 3 by saying, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Our problem, our desperate condition, wasn't just the world, the flesh, and the devil. It was much bigger than that. Our problem was God. We were under the wrath of a holy, righteous God. God's wrath is a despised concept for many, and perhaps a difficult concept for all of us. How can a God of love be wrathful against his own creatures. Well, last week, if you, you may recall in the, in the passage Aaron preached from and read in John chapter 3, it talked about, for God so loved the world. And at the very end of the chapter, he read John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains. On him, It abides, hanging over him like a cloud ready to burst at some point. John Stott de- defines and describes God's wrath in this way. It's neither spite, nor malice, nor animosity, nor revenge. It's never arbitrary, since it is the divine reaction to only one situation, namely evil. Therefore, it's entirely predictable. It's never subject to mood, whim, or caprice. It's God's personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil, his settled refusal to compromise with it, and his resolve instead to condemn it. Further, his wrath is not incompatible with his love. We'll see that in the next verse. We need, I think, to be more grateful to God for his wrath and to worship him that because his righteousness is perfect, he will always react to evil in the same unchanging, predictable, uncompromising way. Without his moral constancy, we could enjoy no peace. Brothers and sisters, when when you look at verses 1 through 3, this description, this 4D description of our hearts, When we were lost apart from Christ, doesn't it make you tremble? This is what we were, dead in our sins. But God, right? Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus 
so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is point two, but God made you alive. God made us alive. Think about that football game played in the cemetery before that crowd of 30,000 unresponsive fans, okay? They couldn't tell the difference between an incomplete pass and a touchdown 50-yard catch. Now imagine the following week, those same two teams are playing again up there at Georgia National Cemetery, and this time the crowd is as raucous and rowdy as they are at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Same crowd, totally different response, and everybody's wondering, what in the world What in the world happened? What changed from last week to this week from this crowd being totally dead to football and all its excitement and now being alive to the thrills and the glory of this game? In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul wants the Christians there to know, and God wants us to know here in Woodstock, Georgia, what changed us from being dead in our sins in verses 1 through 3 to being alive to cry, alive in Christ now. What changed us? How did that happen? So subpoint A here under point number 2 is why, when, what, and how? How did God make us alive? How do we rightly understand this radical change? Well, the first thing that verse 4 tells us is that God set his love on us, even when we were dead in our sins. Even when we were just what verses 1 to 3 describe, God loved us. He didn't wait till we had cleaned our lives up. He set his love upon us. It says God was rich in mercy. Brothers and sisters, God is not stingy with his mercy. He's not parceling out a crumb here for you, Come for you, Michael, John, maybe one more for you. No, God is rich in mercy. And it says, with his great, great love, he loved us. How seldom I can truly say that I love someone with great love. It feels like I'm always calculating the cost or trying to be self-protective, trying to so hard to say, I really love you, to be honest, with great love. And yet, this is how God loved us when we were totally unlovable, dead to him, unresponsive to him, hating him. And yet, God, being rich in love, he loved you and me. He set his love on us long before we ever started seeking him or moving toward him, brothers and sisters. And because of that rich mercy and that grave lo- great love, what did he do? Verse 5 says, he made us alive together with Christ. That was our new birth, brothers and sisters. That's what it means to be born again. God made us alive. That's what made us Christians. Absolutely amazing, isn't it? But God not only made us alive together with Christ. Paul goes on in verse 6 to say that he raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. John Piper expresses his great reversal in verse 4 in this way. He writes, But God, when he walked by my open grave, 
Instead of turning away from the stench, he said to his son, I want that mess alive. Will you die for him? And Jesus said, yes, and that's how I got saved. That's how you got saved. That's how anyone can get saved. God stepped into the graveyard of our situation, our sinful rebellion, didn't he? He sought you and me out. And while we were still dead in our sins, having no impulse toward him at all, he made us alive together with Christ. Isn't that amazing? How did God do all this? What did it take for him to raise us from the dead, to make us born again? Well, have you noticed in Ephesians the repetition of a couple of phrases in chapter 1, in verse 19 and in verse 20, with what we just read here in verses 4, 5, and 6? Look back at chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. Paul was praying that we would know What is the immeasurable greatness of his power, God's power toward us who believe? And that power is according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And now what does he say about us in chapter 2? And you were dead. And God made you alive with Christ and set you with him in the heavenly places. So Paul is saying that the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead on that resurrection day on that first Easter was at work in your life when he made you alive together with Christ. When you were born again, it took the same power that raised Christ from the dead to make you born again. The resurrection power has worked in your life to make you born again, brothers and sisters. And I used to think that I had initiated that. So what does it mean to be born again? Let's take a few minutes to think a little further about that. Because there's often confusion here. What what, what does born again mean? Rihanna has a song named Born Again. And for us older folks, Black Sabbath released an entire album back in 1983 entitled Born Again. Chris, do you have any idea what that was about? I don't either. Um, Commentators sometimes refer to a struggling athlete's career being born again or even a deteriorating part of an inner city is revitalized and it's born again. But when the New Testament talks about us being born again, it's not talking about an attempt at a new start or a personal rebranding or a process of self-improvement or reformation. Here's a definition. To be born again is God's supernatural creation of spiritual life in people who are spiritually dead. God's supernatural creation of spiritual life in people who are spiritually dead. Or another way to put it would be to say, it's the Holy Spirit's sovereign work of implanting eternal life, God's life, God's seed, 1 John 3, 9 causes, into our lives. The Holy Spirit's sovereign work of implanting eternal life, God's seed, into our lives. And the New Testament uses various terms. Born again, born of God, born from above. It talks about a new creation, about being made alive in regeneration. 
And probably the most important Old Testament passage about being about the new birth is the prophecy in Ezekiel 36, verse 25 to 27. I think we may have that on a slide here. But God has been rebuking the Israelites for their sinful ways, how they defiled the land and the blood that they had shed, the idols which they had worshipped. And then he says, I'm going to do something for you for the sake of my name. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all the idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone, that hard, dead heart, and give you a heart of flesh, a soft heart that's alive to me. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. He's saying this to people who were dead in their sins, right? This was the promise. Ezekiel was talking about the promise, the new covenant that would come in Messiah. And the new covenant is the promise to replace the external code of ethics as written on tablets of stone, to replace it with the radical transformation of the heart by the work of God. So when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, do you remember that conversation? And Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's very likely Jesus had this passage in Ezekiel in mind when he was talking with Nicodemus. And then Nicodemus couldn't get his head around it, so he asked, how can an old man crawl back in his mother's womb? Well, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Don't marvel that I say to you, you must be born again, Nicodemus. The wind blows wherever it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Now, Jesus leaves us a little bit frustrated there because it doesn't tell us how the new birth happens. He just says, it's a mysterious work of the Spirit. It's like trying to figure out where the wind is going to blow next. But maybe that's the point. John Piper, again, describes it this way. The new birth is not a work of man. No human makes the new birth happen. You can't make it happen to yourself. God makes it happen. It happens to us, not by us. And just like the wind, we may not know where it's going next, but we know where it's been, right? And we look around our church, and we can see the evidence all over the place that people, you, many of you, most of you, have been born again. So the same power that raised Jesus from the dead caused you to be born again. And gave you new life. And that's the glory of the new covenant promise in Ezekiel. And that's the glory of the new birth. God has fulfilled in your life what he promised to Ezekiel in chapter 36. So the hope that we have is that we're not just trying to change ourselves. And we're not trying to be a better you. I don't need to be a better me. I need to be a new me. I need a power outside of myself to radically change my desires and my affections in the direction and my appetites, right? And that's exactly what happened to us 
and the new birth, brothers and sisters. So the result of the new birth of being made alive in Christ is to change us from being what described us in verses 1 to 3 to being exactly the opposite of that, right? The first result was that we have faith in Jesus. Instead of following all the values of the world, we've come to believe in Jesus. And 1 John 5, 1 says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born again. That's the first evidence, the result of the new birth, that we respond in faith to Jesus. And then now we hunger for his word, what used to seem like dry encyclopedia pages. We want to be in this book. We want to please him instead of gratifying our own fleshly desires. And another thing that happens is that the battle really ramps up, doesn't it? Satan didn't need to bother with us anymore. We were already following him before, already following the world, following our own passions. But now that we've been born again, we are walking in opposition to him. And so the battle with sin ramps up. It's much more difficult for us as believers in battling sin than for most non-believers. They're just going along with it. So why is this important? And David, if you and the band will come back. Why is this important? Well, when I thought of my new birth as something that I had initiated and I had caused, I wasn't very impressed. In fact, I think I tended to view a lot of my Christian life as more of a moral self-improvement project in which the key was my determination and my self-effort rather than the life of the power of God at work in me. Does that resonate with any of you? But when we understand what God, God's word says about is that there was no way any one of us could have initiated a responsive saving faith to Christ. We couldn't respond that way. We were spiritually dead. Not mostly dead, totally dead. We were blind to the beauty of the gospel. We were deaf to the things of God. We are hostile toward God. And when we understand that about ourselves, that it took the power of the resurrection to change us and bring us out of spiritual death to be made alive with Christ, then we begin to recognize evidences of his grace at work in us all over the place. The fact that you joyfully embrace Christ and his death in your place is your only hope of salvation, that's the result of the power of God at work in your life. Your growing appetite for God's word is evidence of new life in your heart. Husbands, your desire to love your wives, even when communication is so difficult that it feels like we're talking like this, right? And, and we're ships passing... Your desire to love your wife in those situations is evidence of the work of God in your heart. And wives, when you continue to respect and love us, when we're impatient, selfish, and make stupid decisions, and you say, I I'm going to continue to love this man, result of the work of God in your life. That doesn't come. We don't gin those things up. Our increasing love for his people here in our own church as well as believers elsewhere, those aren't the result of us 
trying to be good. That's the power of Christ making us alive in Christ. These are the evidence that God's seed, his life, abides in us and we've been born again. So let this greatly encourage you, brothers and sisters, when you start to wonder if God is at work at all in your life, is there any evidence of God's power around us? Look back to your conversion. Remember, it took resurrection power to bring you out of your deadness in sin. When you're wondering if your kids will ever change, if there's any hope for your friend to receive the gospel, let this make you more patient, more prayerful, knowing that just like God changed you, He can change them. Stop and remind yourself about your desperate condition apart from Christ. You also once were dead, hopeless, under God's wrath, just like your family or friend, family member or friend. Some of us may have been religious, perhaps even quite moral relative to those around us, but there wasn't a single one of us seeking the righteousness of God or the glory of God with the heart of faith. We were all wholeheartedly pursuing our own passions. But glory of glories, something happened in verse 4 that nothing of our own doing can account for. So brothers and sisters, let's not forget who we were, where we were before God saved us. This isn't about being right in our theology. This is about being amazed at God's love for us. God stepped into your dead life at some point, and out of his great love for you, he made you alive. And he raised you up, and he seated you with Christ in the heavenly places forever, brothers and sisters. So as we enter 2024, let's be amazed that we are saved. And if you realize today that you've never been born again, and you're wondering, what, what can I do if I'm dead? If I, if I can't respond? Well, the very fact that you're asking that question is evidence God is at work in your life. Cry out to him and say, God, do in my heart what I can't do. Help me, rescue me, save me, please. He loves to answer that prayer. So let's stand and sing together and just rejoice again. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead that work in us today.